This episode is sponsored by the Learn Jazz Standards Inner Circle. If your goal is to level up your jazz playing this year and feel confident improvising over jazz standards, the Inner Circle has everything you need and more. With monthly jazz standard studies, a library of powerful courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded musicians, you're guaranteed to improve your playing every single month. Podcast listeners can get 50% off their first month when you go to ljsinnercircle.com. That's ljsinnercircle.com or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. Buddy, this is Brent. You're listening to the LJS Podcast. This is episode number 18, and today we're having a jazz conversation with Larry Kuntz, jazz guitarist Larry Kuntz. You're not going to want to miss this. You don't need to be a guitar player to get a lot out of this. Great interview, great talk. But before we get into that, I just want to say that all the music on today's show is by our guest, Larry Kuntz. This is off his new album, Conversations. It's a duo album with pianist David Reutstein. So if you like this music, you want to check it out, head on over to Amazon or iTunes. Look up David Reutstein and Larry Kuntz, Conversations. You'll find it there. Also, if you're on the website, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And one more thing before we get started here. If you get value out of today's show, consider adding value back. This podcast, it's 100% supported by listeners like you. So if you get something out of the show today, if you're on the website, click the support button below. You can leave a one-time or monthly donation. Or if you're not on the website, you can go to learnjazzstandards.com slash support and help us out there. And we have a lot of awesome rewards for supporting us. So check all of those out. All right. And for today's episode, I just want to thank my good friend, Peter Ruby, who conducted today's interview with Larry Kuntz. Peter is a guitarist and a professional writer. He also writes for the LJS blog. So if you want to check out his latest piece, uh, if you're on the website, search jazz and the rules of a knife fight. That'll also be in the show notes if you're interested. But let's talk a little bit about our guest today, Larry Kuntz. Larry Kuntz is an internationally renowned jazz guitarist. He's recorded on, been recorded on more than 300 albums. He's recorded with Ray Brown, Bob Brookmeyer, Jimmy Rouse, Warren Marsh, many, many others. He's a fantastic, phenomenal guitarist from Los Angeles. Uh, Incredible player, really worth learning about, really worth checking out if you haven't before. And on today's uh, episode, we're starting with part one where he's talking a little bit about his career, his beginnings, how he got into playing jazz and the guitar, studying in college, his time studying with Jimmy Weibel. And even at the end of the episode, he talks a little bit about playing with space. Uh, And we're going to be continuing the conversation next week with part two. But here's a great start for you. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, I'm going to leave it to Peter and Larry. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to uh, do this podcast for us um, and dive straight in. And if you could talk about, you know, the, 
how you found the guitar? Uh, I first went to to see um, Andre Segovia when I was six. My father took me to see Andre Segovia, and I have to say that the performance was the most magical performance I can remember ever attending. And I think most of that is because I didn't understand what was happening. And, you know, this man comes onto the stage and, and plays the guitar without a microphone. It, and we're talking about a big hall. Uh, and just captivates the entire audience. And I think there were maybe four or five encores at the end. And uh, actually, uh, on a side note, I had a chance to meet Segovia afterward. And um, he was very kind. He patted my cheek. I remember the size of his fingers. Anyway, that's incidental. So I went home afterward. I'd never really played guitar. I'd never showed any interest in it. And my father's a guitarist. So there was a guitar on the stand. And I remember this one piece that Segovia was playing. And I can't remember exactly what the piece was. It might have been, there's a Rodrigo piece that involves uh, playing all open strings at one point. And I kind of remember visually seeing Segovia playing all the open strings without using any left-hand fingerings. So I walked over to the guitar and I strummed it. And um, there was just this tactile feeling, this real... um, feeling of connection with being able to touch the strings and watch them vibrate. And um, I remember also watching sort of transfixed as the string would, would uh, move back and forth and then gradually um, start to, um, you know, decrease the oscillation and eventually be still again. And that fascinated me. I mean, you said your dad was a guitar player, but I mean, he was a pretty well-established guitar player. I mean, I know he worked with George Shearing for a while. Yes. And he was in Warren. He played Warren, you know, at Warren Marsh. Yeah. Um, and many other people. So I'm curious as to how that kind of left, it, it informed, um, you know, your musical development. Yeah, that's a good question. Or, or did not, as the case may be. Right. That's a good question, Peter. Uh, and I think there are... Um, a couple of parts to this answer. Um, the first part to the answer is that, you know, records of Bill Evans and he was a huge Stan Getz fan. Um, these uh, LPs were constantly on the turntable. So the sound was in the house. And, I, and, and, and of course, Warren would come to our house and play occasionally when I was, when I was very young. And uh, I had a chance to meet Warren. So, the sound was already in the air and, um, and sort of, you know, sort of creating its magic on some level. Um, although initially I studied classical guitar. I didn't study, um, I wasn't interested in jazz guitar until um, I went into uh, junior high school and some of my buddies at that point, there was a great program there, um, sort of um, uh, were interested in this music. And, and I found a, 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 a nice connection with my friends through playing music. But my father, um, although, the, although the, the recordings were in the house, he never really um, forced the issue. He let me come to it on my own, um, although he did 
say, I remember I used to have an egg timer if I was if I was going to take lessons, and I decided to take lessons after that uh, experience that I described with Segovia. I really wanted to study guitar, classical guitar. Um, it was agreed that I would have to to practice at least fifteen minutes a day. So I remember this egg timer. You know, the egg timer would be on fifteen minutes, and I wasn't much of a practicer. I wasn't very disciplined. You know, I was a typical six, seven year old. Um, I think I started taking lessons when I was seven. Um, and you know, as soon as the egg timer was would would go off, I'd be out the door. You know, to play with my friends. So. Um, uh, that that was a pretty good description of of uh, my relationship with music at that time. So yeah, it's, it's a, I, we've talked before. You know, I have this thirteen year old. Yeah. who's been playing from about the violin from about the same age you start. Yeah. And, you know, he's been playing classical music and he certainly enjoys it. It's, it's created a great uh, experience for him. But since he's been seriously getting involved with playing jazz in junior high, the difference has been remarkable. Mm. I mean, it's just something he has taken. I mean, here's a kid now, a 21st century kid who walks around the house half the time listening to, you know, whatever the latest rapper, Little Sledgehammer or whoever the latest rapper yeah. is. Uh, half the time. And the other half of the time, he's singing, you know, Clifford Brown solos. Yeah. And, you know, and this is just the end. At the end of the, the this program that he does at Jazz at Lincoln Center, he and four or five other kids go downstairs instead of going out, going home. They all congregate on the pavement, on you know, on the sidewalk, and start playing. They, they made like 140 bucks in two hours, <laughs> which they then took and spent in a diner. That's fantastic. Well, so it's it's really interesting seeing. You know. It's a great observation, Peter. I I think there's a social aspect to music that I find really attractive. Um, it, it, you know, this is interesting. I, I, I even use music as it's, it's a, a big part of the relationship with my father. I, we're not, uh, when we're together, despite this huge affection for each other, we're not really, um, we're not really conversationalists, but when we play, it sort of, it sort of takes, uh, it, it takes the place of that void that exists. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, it is funny because I try not to play too much with Benjamin, but I do play with him sometimes. But I want it to be his music, yeah, um, rather than something that you know my dad does. So let me get involved with it because of that. Right, right. Um, but I'm also the anti-dad because it's funny your father said you have to play for 15 minutes and, and certainly at that age I kept saying to Benjamin you don't have to do this you can quit anytime you want no 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 I want to do it so, okay well, if you want to do it then you have to practice you can't half do it so yes. make a choice um, so that you know I was sort of the you know I, I, I heard pe stories of people who used to practice piano with uh, I think Victor Borger used to talk about having yeah. His teacher stand behind him with a rolled up newspaper, you know, hitting him on the head when he didn't practice. <laughs> well, you know, I think what you describe 
your relationship with your son is very similar to the relationship I had to music with my father. You know, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna take lessons, you do have to commit to a certain extent. And you know, it's interesting because I've, I've become friends with uh, Julian Lodge, and mm-hmm. Julian at a very young age now wanted to practice. He couldn't get he, he couldn't get enough of the guitar, you know. And so I think he's the exception. I think most people. Um, uh, fall more into the category of your son and myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, as I say, now he's discovered jazz. I think he's moving quite radically into that other area right. now. Which, is the, you know, um, which sort of leads us a little bit into uh, an experience that you had um, when you were a little older, which is when you studied with Jimmy Weibel, who I know was... Uh, you said was quite an influence. Yes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Jimmy and what you studied and how you studied. Of course. Uh, how that shaped you. Yeah, I, I went to study with Jimmy um, after I made a transition um, more towards studying jazz improvisation. Um, I, I, I guess that transition was when I was in junior high. I was about 13 and became interested in... Uh, in that music through the social aspect of playing with friends and they had a very strong program and that became my thrust and and classical music sort of uh fell by the wayside at that point um and my father had a relationship with jimmy and 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 uh, of course had known about jimmy because jimmy was quite well known um in 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 uh different periods, um, especially well-known for his work with uh, Benny Goodman and and some of the early swing artists. Um, So when I became interested in jazz, my father knew that it was was probably going to be a good idea to um, find a teacher that would be substantial in terms of sort of... um, uh, giving me an, a, an idea about voicings, guitar voicings, and reading, and uh, and learning how the music feels. And he thought that Jimmy Weibel would be the best fit for for um, for my study at that point. And uh, you know, I would occasionally ask my father questions, uh, and we would have our little mini sessions. But it was it was. Um, a foregone conclusion that the father-son studying thing was not going to work long time, long term. <laughs> you know, teenage years being what they are, um, oh, yes. and attitude and all that kind of stuff. So, um, when he sent me to Jimmy, I would see Jimmy probably on a bi-weekly basis. I think I would see him once every two weeks, and uh, we Im- immediately launched into looking into uh, Jimmy's contrapuntal music. And so, in a way, it was a it was a good bridge from from the classical studies that I'd done previous to Jimmy, in that I was working with music that was on the page, but it was, you know, now the music was dealing with jazz harmony, and um, and also uh, stylistically, it came more from a, a swing aesthetic. You know, so now I was learning how to uh, make it feel good, and and I have to say that in, in terms of being able to um, swing, uh, Jimmy is about the strongest um, 
player on the guitar that I, I think I've ever heard. He had a time sense that was just immaculate, and he he had 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 a way of making the music just feel so good. Um, and he came out of that Texas swing aesthetic with Bob Wills and Spade Cooley, and um, just had this infectious way of playing. And 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 I would have to say that that. Despite the the fact that that Jimmy um, turned me on to so many different aspects of of working with counterpoint and um, talking about function of harmony, I would have to say that that the the most valuable thing that I got from Jimmy was just um, that stuff that you get. I think that's translated more on an unconscious level, where you're around someone and you're absorbing how they do it um, as opposed to what they're doing. And um, in the spirit of, of Jimmy's uh, time, I think really affected me profoundly. Also, uh, I, I was able to witness Jimmy improvising the most profound um, intros to tunes um, and then before we play, in which he would sort of weave these contrapuntal melodies. And I honestly have never heard a guitarist on the face of the earth be able to spontaneously um, put together these contrapuntal, um, uh, how do I put it, contrapuntal um, <laughs> I don't know. The, I, it's hard to find the words with Jimmy because it was so magical. But uh, he, he just had the ability to to, to improvise contrapuntally, un, unlike any other artist I'd ever heard. So we move on. So, because you had you've had a really interesting career in terms of music and the influences, and you know, in college, uh, you went to college to study music, I guess, right? But you, you the first person to get a degree from USC, uh, University of Southern US California. Not not a, de a degree in jazz. Well, <laughs> it's not the first person to get a degree. Yeah, but, actually, uh, it yeah, it was a degree in jazz studies. I think I think that's the. So how did, you know, I mean, obviously, keep it short, but I mean, how did that come about? That's an interesting uh, experience in itself. Yeah, well, at that time, jazz programs were just beginning to establish themselves. You know, I mean, getting a degree um, at that time in, in jazz studies was, was, a, was a, a pretty tricky proposition because there were, you know, no schools offered this degree. You'd go into into um, a college environment for a music education degree or a, a classical performance degree. There really were no options outside of that, with the exception of of places like um, North Texas and Indiana, um, which which were older and, and and more established in terms of their their jazz curriculum. Um, so USC was the only local school in, in Los Angeles that would, uh, uh, offer that degree. So, um, 
I initially went into what is what was called the studio guitar program. Of course, L.A. Um, is uh, a, a place where commercial music for a long time thrived. I think it's changed a lot, and um, and that era is sort of over to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about the era where you know, um, you know, all these guitarists were doing multiple sessions on a daily basis for television, for movies. Um, uh, to a certain extent, that doesn't exist anymore. But this program was fashioned to sort of address the the uh, skills that a guitarist would need to go into that kind of situation. Um, so it wasn't a it wasn't a happy marriage for me because um, you know I was still trying to figure out my place in the world and. Um, did go to several studio sessions um, through friends of my father's and didn't really enjoy enjoy the environment. Uh, first of all, musically, it wasn't that interesting, and it seemed like most of the players uh, were more enthusiastic about their um, 401ks, you know. <laughs> and uh, for me, it wasn't about that. It just it didn't, it you know, I was really attracted to the music. So um, all that being said, uh, the emphasis in the studio guitar program was primarily on uh, jazz pedagogy. So there were harmony classes and fingerboard skills classes, um, and two great teachers there, Paula Rose, who, who passed away quite a while ago, and uh, Duke Miller, who's also gone. But they, they sort of constructed a program that sort of addressed the needs of of. Uh, being well-rounded as a guitarist, and um, Duke, Duke in particular, was very uh, methodical with his fingerboard approach. He had a, a system called the Zone System, which sort of liberated the entire fingerboard and um, addressed all those uh, mysterious parts of the fingerboard that sometimes are. Um, are not examined as deeply, like, you know, around the 12th fret, right below the 12th fret. Um, So it was in the last year at uh, USC that they were toying with the notion of creating this jazz studies degree. Um, So basically I jumped ship from the studio guitar program because um, I was faced with playing a recital in which you play country western and you play uh, some fusion styles and some R&B styles and not that I don't like this music I I, you know some of this music is is beautiful but I just knew that I was not a jack-of-all-trades kind of player and I wasn't skilled at it and I didn't have the the deep affection that was necessary to really uh, go into that field and thrive, being a studio guitarist, that is. So um, I took advantage of this uh, new degree offering and uh, ended up getting my degree in jazz studies. It's, it's, it's interesting you talk about not, you know, sort of being a purist to a degree in terms of your interest. But, you know, as somebody that's listened to your recordings, you know, and there are thankfully a lot of recordings of you. You have a very wide range of, of music and playing. Um, yes. You know, one of the things that I've always found really very admirable about what you do is, you know, you have this thing that Jim Hall has to degree where you know you're a great, 
leader, but you're a terrific supporting player as well, you know, an accompanist, which is an art that a lot of people... It's a really subtle art, which, you know, I aspire to, but it's, it's really interesting what, how to do that to make it interesting and not get in the way at the same time. Um, I wonder if maybe if you could talk a little bit about that, because everybody always yeah. talks about you know, thrashing and shredding, and, you know, but it's all this other stuff I, that, that is really well, interesting. Thank you, Peter. I, and, and I think you're right. I think I do. Uh, there is a strong part of me that enjoys accompanying somebody and supporting them and, and, and not taking, um, the, uh, the lead or more prominent role. Um, there is something to the art of finding an environment for somebody for, for them to really sort of, um, be able to tell a story for them to be able to bloom in whatever way that I find really appealing uh, so I like to work with um, singers that come from that perspective. Now, not all, you know, some singers, I, I love working with singers that are, um, that have a little bit of give and take. So, you know, you're offering them an environment, but they also give you uh, a chance to sort of interject. It's, it's, it's so much like having a conversation like we're, we're having um, in that, you know, uh, somebody holds court for a while and you respectfully um, sort of provide, uh, uh, I guess a, a good way to put it is an environment for it to happen. And then you respond in some way. And um, those are my favorite kinds of singers to work with. And, and I've, I've been fortunate to work with, I think, some of the, the greatest singers on the planet um, from the get-go. And... Um, my aesthetic is that uh, I think less is more if the situation is is uh, is asking for that because then it really um, allows for um, elements to sort of take hold and um, with the exception of you know, I, you know I worked a lot with Luciana Souza who's an incredible Brazilian singer. Um, and for me, it was a real stretch because this Luciana is a virtuoso, and she comes from Brazil. She really understands that music, and and for me, it's 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 a kind of music that um, um, I'm learning secondhand culturally. You know, I don't know about that culture. I've never I have been there, but you know, I I, I haven't really learned it from the perspective of really uh, studying the way their language works, and I'm talking about their musical language. So for me, it's always been in, in, intuitive and uh, and sort of a learning process of just sort of listening to what's around me. And in that context, sometimes you can't, less is more is not the aesthetic. Sometimes you have to come up to the bar. It's a little different. It's a, it's a, it's a different way of operating. Sometimes you have to um, be more rhythmic and you have to um, fill up the space in a different way. So for me, that was a bit of a stretch, but in general, I think less is more is a, is a good way of approaching it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that I, I've always found that um, playing guitar and voice is always a very, um, somebody else's voice, not mine. Um, <laughs> it's always, you know, a lot of fun, but there are quite a few singers who find that very daunting because of the space, because you don't have that piano left hand and right hand at the same time with the 
you know, the, the whole approach is you know there are singers that rise to that, right. the, the uh, ability to to use space and and in fact it's interesting listening to some of the recordings that you've made where i've had to listen two or three times and realize wow there's actually just you and a bass player there is no drummer there um or you know it, it's because it doesn't feel as if there's anything missing um uh, and it's not that you're playing lots of notes you know the flow is something i want to talk about in a minute but it's that it's how you use space and uh, you know i realized not that long ago having thought about these i'm at an age now where i actually start to think about stuff in ways that i didn't when i was younger and one of the things i realized is that playing duos in particular or playing solo guitar which you haven't recorded an awful lot but i'm sure you you know you did extremely well is about using how you use that space it's not always about filling it up but it is about how you conceive of using it Um, absolutely absolutely you know it's interesting because I went through a long period where I examined how um, there's something about the way the cello sounds, the range, the, the, the sound of the instrument that is really appealing to me. And uh, when I was on the road with Cleo Lane at a very young age, I was afforded the opportunity to hear some really incredible um, string players in, in the various orchestras that we would play with, essentially doing pops concerts. You know, Philadelphia Orchestra, we're talking about really high-level string players. And I would always watch the cellists warm up and play long tones, and, you know, and they and they work to make the bow seamless. The, the bow's going one way, and then goes the other way, and you don't hear any, you don't hear any break in sound, and you hear this beautiful seamless sound. Um, and uh, I always felt that guitarists sort of neglected this. All my peers that were guitarists at at a young age, and, and I'm including including myself, we were all uh, sort of um, trapped in the notion that technique had to do more with being able to play at a higher metronomic marking and really not um, valuing the sound of the instrument or valuing the fact that a note decays and then there's silence. Um, and what I noticed with these string players was that they were really getting into sound, trying to make a rich sound and, and connecting with it. Um, and that had a huge impact on me. That's all for today's show. We're going to be continuing our conversation with Larry Kuntz next week. And if you have any comments to make about today's episode, feel free to leave us a comment in the comment section below if you're on the website. And remember to check out Larry's album, Conversations. Go to iTunes or Amazon. Check out that album there. And if you got any value out of today's podcast, consider adding value back. If you're on the website, you can click the support button to leave us a monthly or one-time donation, or if you're not on the website, go to learnjazzstandards.com support, and you can help us out there. We're going to be continuing our conversation with Larry Kuntz next week in episode number 19. We hope to see you then.
Hey, podcast listener, would you like to ask me a jazz question and get it answered here on the show? Then go to learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. That's learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. I look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future podcast episode. LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash ask or find the link in today's show notes.